0: Okay, salamu alaykum, everybody. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Um, I'm super excited for today's session. Um, we're going to, of course, have an incredible halakha, but um, even more exciting for me, um, I have the actual the, the pleasure of introducing, um, to give the introduction today, one of my favorite people on the planet. Um, her name is Marwa. She's also known as Mademoiselle Mimi. Um, if you have been following um, the weekly emails or, you know, our videos, um, you will know that uh, Marwa and I actually had a conversation years ago about the hijab. And, um, and also being in the fashion industry because Marwa is um, really um, a, a superstar, um, known for um, modest fashion, and is just has a style like no one else, and just I'm always really proud to see how she elevates um, the dignity of Muslim women through her artistry. Um, it's, you know, knowing her personally, um, it's not just about looking good or, you know, artistry, but it's about trying to um, be as beautiful inside and outside. You know, stand for causes. Um, really present um, a dignified face for Muslim women. Because um, aside from showing up on the pages of Vogue Arabia and a number of different really you know huge magazines, um, she also um, has you know made her um, her presence. Um, felt with social causes um, and you know especially in in time of COVID you know she used to go to New York Fashion Week all the time and would be in you know street fashion and and, you know be filmed and all of that Um, but since that has all kind of died down with COVID she has turned her influence towards elevating social causes which has been really beautiful Um, and what you know she's brilliant aside from being beautiful. Um, But she um, noticed that one of the topics that the sheikh raised in the khutbah this past week um, was about the hijab legislation happening in France. And so was interested to know who was talking about it, what media was reporting about it, you know, what Muslims were talking about it, and it was basically zero. Um, And it was very um, interesting that it was something that the, the sheikh here highlighted before anyone else. Um, and she took it upon herself, um, with the help of our amazing social media superstar here, Ramin, um, to bring it to, um, the forefront on Instagram and other social media platforms. And so that, um, Usuli actually had quite a, a day yesterday, kind of blew up Instagram. Um, so I really wanted, um, uh, Marwa to come and talk about this issue because obviously this is, um, you know, an issue that is really important for, um, hijabi women and, um, I all Muslim women, it's not just Fajabi women, but because she is someone who is on the forefront um, and you know has a lot of very interesting and important insight um, and is very articulate about this issue. I really wanted her to have a chance to um, talk about it um, here. And woman power, especially after Surah Mariam, is very exciting, um, is my honor to introduce Mademoiselle Mimi. <laughs>
1: Hi. (laughs) I'm Marwa, as Grace told you with that very generous introduction. I don't even know where to begin. Uh, This is really unexpected, but I'm really grateful for the opportunity to speak. Um, Grace and the professor, and I, and like students here, were talking about. What was happening basically in France after the khutbah, if you haven't seen it, I really recommend it. It was really powerful. and uh, Even the halakha we did afterwards on Saturday about women was also kind of just adding to that narrative. And so as many of us have seen since then on social media, things have really picked up in terms of what's happening with women in France. And I really wanted Usuli to be part of that narrative, so we kind of jumped on it and shared a lot about what the professor's been saying for a long time about women and hijab, especially just at the uh, Friday prayer khutbah we had. Um, So just the background, I am a student (laughs) at Project Illumin, but I also am in the fashion uh, industry and modest fashion, of course. Um, And you know, after seeing what was happening in France, it just reminded me that this kind of, the, what the French government is doing also affects me here in the U.S. because I wear hijab but also even in my own industry and so I actually had published this online yesterday um, and sent it to a lot of people in the, in the industry which I think they hadn't really made the connection about hijab just on a global scale and what this does to women. Um, But I was talking about essentially a story um, about what happened to me at Fashion Week that I never really planned to share, but I felt like this was the right moment. Um, You know, during Fashion Week, one of the biggest things is street style. And it's important because it's really how real women wear the clothing on the streets, and so it's kind of like a frenzy where there's hundreds of photographers on the street, looking to capture how real women are wearing these pieces off the runway or, you know, new designers, etc. And so with modest fashion, you know, I had picked up a lot in the last two, three years, obviously since the pandemic, it's not really happening. Um, but essentially I had gotten featured, like Grace was talking about, in some magazines and Vogue and Harper's Bazaar, and a lot of like American and international publications, except of course in France. And so I was really curious as to why they weren't kind of paying attention, especially to the modest fashion movement, um, which was really hot and really coming up. And essentially, I mean, it's very much a young side of the fashion industry still, but everybody was talking about it. And so one of the photographers that I knew was supposed to be capturing these events, I asked him, you know, can we have a meeting? I'd love to talk to you more about your work. And so we met over coffee and I was like, you know, how come you don't photograph women in a headscarf? Like hijabi women, Muslim women in general, but you know, modest fashion has kind of been associated with women in hijab because they're visibly Muslim and they're really leading the charge for modest fashion. So that's the only reason I say that, um, why he wasn't, you know, photographing a hijabi woman. And so he told me, well, your photos don't sell. (laughs) and essentially magazines don't want your photos editors don't want your photos and no one wants to publish you and so I don't take your photos and he won't even essentially take his photos for his own personal take our photos for his own personal uh, portfolio and it's not like there's hundreds of us at fashion week either there's only like five or six of us so it's really easy you know to feature us when Usually these spreads about, you know, street fashion are 50 to 200 photos. Sometimes if you go on Vogue, it's like 250 plus photos and not a single one. Sometimes features a Muslim woman in a headscarf. And so I had noticed season after season this guy hadn't featured any of us. And I asked him and he was really just blunt about it. And I was caught off (laughs) guard. Uh, you know, what he had said basically was a reason and that, you know, Essentially, it's not just that someone like himself is not going to make money off of it And so he has no interest in us But when he sends it to the editors who are going to feature it in print or are online digitally There's still no interest for us either and they don't want us to be part of this narrative And I told them like, you know, you should be featuring us on your personal platform as part of your portfolio but also the fact that you're not taking our photos you're basically erasing us from this whole narrative I mean, we're coming to Fashion Month to speak about fashion and contribute to the arts. And essentially, we're not included at all. It's like we weren't even there. We're not visible. We didn't exist. We're not part of any aspect of fashion. And, you know, I don't know if he really took that messaging to heart and understood it, or was he just really thinking about his paycheck. But now, with what's happening in France, it really reminded me of that conversation. And we had this conversation about, like, two years ago. And now seeing kind of what the French government is trying to do with women under age 18, it made me think about, okay, well, modest fashion has really been driven by youth, by teenagers and young college students. If they're not allowed to wear a headscarf until they reach the age of 18, then modest fashion is completely gone. Like, this whole space doesn't exist. And if other European countries follow suit and kind of get on this bandwagon, and it's even if they don't pass the law, the narrative exists. Where you know we can be hostile to Muslim women, we can you know harass them if they have a headscarf, we can treat them differently, and that's enough damage to really I think damage the confidence that women have even wearing the headscarf publicly, let alone in spaces like Modest Fashion, and I think one of the things that was surprising is that over the weekend you know a handful of Muslim women had reposted like this image um, where it said hashtag hands off my hijab. But it took me reaching out to my colleagues in fashion who are not Muslim from the black community, from the Asian community, to post this for Muslims to finally actually get on and start posting it themselves. Um, And I know at the Holocaust here, we talk a lot about being a witness to injustices, being a witness to things happening where you should have a voice and speak. But it was non-Muslims who were really there to speak about what was happening to French Muslim hijabi women. And it really made me think about, okay, well, what's the future for hijabi women if Muslims won't even stand up for their own causes? And what's the future for my own industry of modest fashion if, you know, in times like this we don't say anything? Thank you. <laughs>
2: Good job. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Marwa. I, you know, I was so impressed by um, you know Marwa really um, reached out to the people on Instagram who had massive followings and made them aware of what what was being said here at Asuli, um, and just single-handedly um, put this issue on the map. We have a hashtag. It says, "Leave Muslim women alone." and it just literally um blew up but it was you know brilliant because i mean you know i don't really know very much about social media strategy so i leave it to people who are much better at that but i know that from what marwa and ramin were able to do is that they were really um able to spark a lot of passion among people who really are standing on the front line of justice and it was um you know people who were as marwa said you know on on Black issues, Asian issues, LGBTQ issues, you know, people who are out there fighting for things that matter where Muslims should really be fighting. And it was very embarrassing and hurtful to see that Muslims did not stand up and support or retweet or, you know, use their followers, or influence with their followers to highlight this issue until it became sort of a recognized issue. Like then it was okay to jump on the bandwagon, but nobody really wanted to stick their neck out and be, you know, at the forefront of justice. So kudos to Marwa and Ramin for recognizing the opportunity and really, um, you know, turning it into something important. And, um, you know, hopefully we're going to continue to raise this issue um, because, you know, a lot of people maybe still really don't know what we're talking about is, you know, the, the legislation in France that says that women under, or girls, I guess, under the age of 18 are not allowed to wear hijab. And also, that um, women who are wearing hijab are not allowed to accompany their young children in hijab without risk of being um, harassed or fined, or I'm not sure what else. Um, but it's, it's a full on assault. Um, and one of the um, very um, interesting people who actually reposted was Diet Prada, um, who takes on a lot of these really important causes and was very interested very interestingly pulled pull together a mosaic of women, religious women from all different faiths and their head coverings and said, pop quiz, which of these covered women is getting outlawed in France? Which is really fascinating because you've got you know, nuns, you've got people, Buddhists, um, Jains, I mean everyone under the sun who wears a head cover but really it's only the Muslim women that are being targeted. Um, and interestingly this comes right after our surah Maryam which um, if you haven't watched it yet was all about women empower- empowerment and the role of women the, the really critical role of women in making Islam come to life from the time of the Prophet and forward. And, you know, it was really um, a way for us, I think, in our time and age to be empowered and be excited about the role that we can play on, in causes like this. Um, you know, I would like to see, you know, just one idea I was throwing out, well, what if all Muslim women started looking, dressing like nuns? You know, what are these people going to do, you know, as a, as a social statement? I mean, why don't we start thinking out of the box about how we as Muslim women can protest this issue? So anyway, um, again, thank you so much, Marwa. Um, that was wonderful and um, you know I look forward to having more incredible introductions and more engagement with women um, in you know in this space. So alhamdulillah. And looking forward to today's halakha.
3: Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. <laughs> rahman al-Rahim. Subhanallah al والسلام على محمد رحمة للعالمين خاتم الأنبياء والرسل أجمعين وعلى إلى يوم الدين الله Just to, so just so that it's clear. Um, the it, the law banning women under eighteen from wearing the hijab uh, has passed in France, and it, it is the actual, it is the law. So, um, if your parents and you have a child under eighteen who's wearing the hijab, you could get into a lot of tr- trouble—a lot of trouble—and. Um, Um, because obviously the the child is not the actual offender, but the parents of the child are the offenders. And the law that is being discussed and has not passed yet is the law that would make it um, a crime for the muhajjaba to accompany her child in public. Um, uh, She would be subject to a fine, um, but as Marwa said, the point is, yet again, France uh, leads the colonial project that um, seeks to, that, that effectively uh, colonizes the, the Muslim space by targeting Muslim women. And they, they've done that since, you know, in their whole history, of, their whole colonial history in, in Africa and in Algeria, and um, and of course the big irony is that France at the same time, and not just France, but Europe in general, at the same time that they have this sworn hostility to veiling in all its forms, um, they sexually fetishize Muslim women. And they, they are the ones responsible for the whole industry of erotica of mahajanas, um, uh, which now has even exploded after the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan into some very dark themes and very disturbing themes. And, um, You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I get Muslims, especially young Muslims, that will write me uh, something to the effect of, you're always talking about problems, but you never tell us what to do. And I think what Marwa was pointing out, Marwa and Grace were pointing out, were really important. That, you know, here's a really good example. Um, all that Muslims needed to do was to retweet something. That's all they needed to do, was just retweet it, to, to just contribute mildly, a, a minimal effort. But they didn't do so until they saw non-Muslims, famous, um, famous non-Muslims, getting on the bandwagon. And then they started retweeting. And, and this is precisely, it's not an issue of not knowing what to do, It's precisely that we Muslims suffer from a defeated psychology. We are, we we have the psychology of a defeated people. Um, Which also includes the, the, the problem that every Muslim wants to be the beacon and fountain of authority. Every Muslim wants to be, no one wants to be the soldier. Everyone wants to be the leader. No one wants to be the receiver of fiqh. Everyone wants to be the giver of fiqh. No one wants to be the propagator of ideas. Everyone wants to be the giver of ideas. That's symptomatic of a defeated people as well. And as a result, we're in a complete stalemate because we are constantly, all of us, reinventing the wheel. Uh, We refuse to play supportive roles. Uh, because we all want leading roles. And we want leading roles whether we deserve leading roles or whether we've put in, invested, the effort or time um, to have leading roles. And as a result, we're frozen. Because I am sure that the reason that all these Muslims that they sent the message to did not retweet it is they probably saw that it's coming from another Muslim scholar and they thought to themselves, well, oh, uh, it, it's, you know, I'm not going to retweet something that belongs to some other Muslim scholar, it, you know, because that is somehow conceding authority to that person. Very childish. This is how defeated people act. Childish. Childish. This is not how professionals or intellectuals or serious people act. And then when they saw that someone famous jumped on the bandwagon, they thought, "Oh well, now it, I can attribute it to this famous person, not to another Muslim scholar." It's sickening. I mean, it just—it makes you. I don't know. We. 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 we... There is a real ailment of sincerity, and and pure intentionality. Um, okay, so inshallah today we will deal with Surah Taubah, and um, as you all know, of course, Surah Taubah is very short. But it is, um, interestingly, a surah that has received a considerable amount of attention and sparked um, a lot of narratives in the Islamic tradition. And um, this is one of those surah that I think the best way to approach it is um, through the, the methodology I used before um, of presenting three narratives or three approaches. Uh, because of the, of the, not every surah I can do this with, but with Surah Tariq, I think it is fitting. The traditional approach will be the first approach that I present. The, the sort of um, the tr- the approach that you find in all the Nakli transmission-based tafsirs, um, um, like Ibn Kathir or Tabari, Qurtubi, um, the, the traditional approach and how they understood Surah Tariq. Then, the second approach will be the Sufi esque approach. Um, I don't like the word esoteric in this context because of the connotation that it carries among uh, um, in modern circles. But the Sufi esque approach clearly uh, differed from the traditional approach in some very significant ways, and Surat Tariq with them played a very different role. And then the third and last approach will be my own approach to Surat Tariq, uh, which as you will see is um, very, I mean, in, in many ways, it's very similar to the Sufiesque approach, but with some Uh, Important differences that we'll discuss. So the first traditional, the second the Sufi esque, and then the third will be uh, my approach. And Surah Tariq is, well, one, it's uh, 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 for me personally, it's a it's a surah i've always felt a personal connection with because my brother's name is Tariq and of course as a kid you know i was fascinated why by why, why isn't there a surah Khalid but there is a surah Tariq um so my you know that, that was a that was an issue between my brother and me but um but it was always dear to me because of um, of the fact that It's my brother's name. Um, And, you know, it raises this sort of interesting question, well, why should we call a a person a Tariq? But actually, it makes a lot of sense, as we will see. And Surah Tariq is a Meccan surah by consensus of all. And uh, it is... It is in the stream of Sur um, that I think constituted the backbone of the Islamic message. Um, it, It is, in terms of order of revelation, it's by majority opinion, probably 36 in order of revelation um, and even those who, you know, disagreed they might have said it's number thirty-five or number thirty-seven. So, but it is clearly, it, it's probably thirty-six. is the most certain. And it was revealed after Surah Al-Balad and before Surah Al-Qamar. We we haven't covered. No, have, we did cover Surah Al-Balad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we did. We haven't covered Surah Al-Qamar, right? Um so it was revealed after the ballad and before Surah al qamar and that means that it was revealed after Surah Qaf before Surah Saad it was revealed before Surah that we covered like Yasin and Al-Furqan and Fatir Um but at the same time, revealed after critical surah like al-Ikhlas, al-Najm, al-Buruj, surah al-Tin, al-Qari'a, al humazah al-Humaza, and so on. And re- what, among the things that is fascinating about Surah Tariq is that um, we have reports that the Prophet ﷺ in, in the period of the um, taking the Islamic message to the public, so when the Islamic message emerges out of the secrecy phase in Dar al Arqam, uh, that the Prophet ﷺ Uh, would recite it in public in Mecca. And we even have these interesting reports uh, that he recited Surah Tariq as he was trying to get uh, the people of Taqif to um, support him. And that Mecca commented about the, the Surah well yeah th- th- this is very beautiful but if if uh, we know that this this man is a fraud so taqif don't follow him so we we have surah tarak sort of in the early dynamics appear in, in the in the narratives of the early dynamics of the of the islamic message but what's really interesting is that the impact of surah tarak in terms of its impact on theology um Takes place really long after the Prophet uh dies, so it has an impact on the Muslim narrative, on the Muslim theological framework, um, uh, as we will see. Um, after the, 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 the period of the founders of the Prophet ﷺ and the companions. And this in part is because of the language of Surah Tariq itself, that it it is phrased in a way that leaves the gates of interpretation open. And um, the, the imagination of the interpreter and sort of provokes the moral and ethical um, uh, senses of the reader uh, or the receiver of the surah. Uh, and ch- in many ways challenges the, the reader to, to understand a deeper meaning to the surah, if you will. Okay. So let's start first with the traditional approach and how it understood Surah Tariq. A hadith that is well known both to traditionals and non-traditionals is um, Uh, is a hadith where the Prophet says something to the effect of which means that woe to person to the person who reads this surah and does not pay. Later, fikr or zikr, who does not pay attention to what it says. So we, we know that the Prophet والسلام, was urging Muslims from the get-go to pay careful attention to what Surah Tariq was saying. Um, and this was known to, to, to both the literalist approaches and the non literalist approaches but obviously it, it affected them in different ways. So it starts out quite simply with وَالْطَارِقُ وَمَا مَالْطَارِقُ النَّجْمُ Was the sky, the heavens, a reference to what is above and it's a broad reference and the Tariq. And then the rhetorical question and do you know what the Tariq is? And the answer to the rhetorical question is a najm li- quite literally the piercing star. Now we know that the Tariq in Arabic was um, anything Anything that comes through the night that is unexpected is a tarq. Anything that knocks is a tarq. And in Old Arabic, a was understood as something that especially occurs at night, but in by the time the Surah Tarq Tariq is revealed in Arabic usage a Tariq didn't necessarily have to be something that occurs at night a Tariq could be anything that is unexpected or surprising. So in Arabic we say Tariq uh, for street. Why is a street called Tariq? It's because feet, figuratively, knock on the street. As feet walk on the street, they're as if, you know, they're knocking on the street. One of the du'as of the Prophet ﷺ is that he would say, uh, he would ask refuge, would ask Allah's protection from Al-Tawariq. إِلَّا bi uh, the, the, the Prophet ﷺ would say, Allah protect me from any Tariq, uh, except a Tariq that comes with goodness. Meaning, Allah protect me from any unexpected occurrence, any surprising, unexpected thing, unless it's something good. Um... Again, in, in Arabic usage, if you light a fire and feed the fire, so it, it, it gives a good glow, uh, that, uh, that is described as meaning you uh, make the fire bigger or glow greater, feeding the fire. So if I say atruq al-nar I'm not telling you to knock at the fire I'm telling you feed the fire you know bring back, bring the fire to to greater life So when the surah starts with the heavens and the tariq and then says that rhetorical question well what is the tariq and then points out specifically to a star, In the traditional interpreters said, well, what is the common usage at the time of revelation? And the common usage, if you are looking at the star and you're looking for stars that we describe as tariq well, there are specific candidates for that. There's the morning star, Arabs used to call the morning star a Tariq. There is Jupiter um, that they also used to describe as a Tariq. There are certain falling stars that they would describe as Tariq, these stars that shoot through the heavens and seem to shoot back and forth in the heavens. And of course, because the, the Arabs navigated using stars, um, their knowledge of stars and the position of stars and the role of stars was quite significant. I mean, stars was, if you, if you didn't know stars well, you're going to get lost in the desert, especially if you travel at night, and that's quite disastrous. Now, but that begs the question, well, yes, but what about this piercing star? Whether it's the morning star, whether it's Jupiter, or whether it's the star that appears at the beginning of Maghrib, there is a hadith that says that there is no prayer between Asra and Tariq, means... There is no prayer between Asr and Maghrib, the, the star that appears at the beginning of Maghrib. So, I mean, in a sense of so what. And the traditional interpreters answered discussion by saying, "Well, Allah frequently asks us to reflect on the miraculousness of." The skies, the 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 what surrounds the earth, and the, the configuration of stars in themselves, and the ability, the the way that Allah has created these stars, they often give us guidance on to how to travel, how to navigate, how to know north from south, east from west, and in fact. <coughs> through the visibility of stars or non-visibility of stars, we can predict whether it's safe to travel or not to travel. Allah is reminding us of all the bounties that Allah has bestowed upon us. Excuse me. And furthermore, that the complexity of the heavens and the configuration of stars in, in the heavens It cannot occur by coincidence. There is an engineer, there is aql fa'al, as they used to say, called an active intellect behind uh, the configuration of constellations and the configuration of galaxies and the way that things are organized um, and organized to preserve human life. Interestingly, even the the early Arabs were aware that very small, and I, I think it's probably that they had some experiences with, uh, uh, with comets or meteorites or something like that because they were very aware how fragile human life is in relation to what comes from the heavens they they were and they they often have poetry about the heavens when the heavens get gets mad you know and 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 then sends them a comet or sends them a meteorite and how it just destroys everything and how they've seen cattle you know all perish overnight um or water that a try has been sustaining the life of a tribe for decades go bad and become entirely unusable just because of what comes from the heavens. Uh, I mean, they, they, that, these things lived in their memory and they were keenly aware that um, if the balance between the heavens and the earth is off, their life is a danger. And so, for the traditional interpreters, they say, you know, again, a wise person would reflect on how intricate that balance is and uh, how, easily, how, how easy it would be for, with very small changes in the heavens, for life to perish on earth and for life to be unsustainable or even unsustainable certain parts of the earth. Um, so while if you look at the traditional tefasir you'll find these long discussions about you know is it Jupiter is it this star is it that star I mean there's it's all Najmul could could refer to any of them So there's no way to resolve this debate uh, because we don't have, their methodology relies on transmissions, what is transmitted. And there is nothing transmitted that tells us it's this specific star or that it's not this specific star. Okay. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says, if you understand that the maker of the heavens organized the heavens in a way that would so that it can be advantageous for a human life, and that that is remarkable in itself, um, If you truly reflect on that and understand that you will also understand that there is no soul that goes without a hafiz. A hafiz literally translates as a sustainer, protector, or a guardian. And in the traditional tafsir, they go into whether these this is the hafiz that is referred to elsewhere in the Qur'an as hafaza in the plural, meaning angels who record your deeds, or is the hafiz here a different type of heavenly creature, in other words, an angel, not that records the deeds, but that uh, there, there's, a, there's an old debate that goes back to Greek philosophy about, and by the way, it's a debate that still goes on in modern philosophy, about the nature of consciousness. What is consciousness? you know, this, this question has troubled human beings for forever, from, from the time of the Greeks till our modern day. I mean, you could read book after book after book, and you could read the approach of psychologists, the approach of psychiatrists, the approach of clinicians, the approach of, you know, abstract philosophers, uh, uh, just endless debates about what is consciousness. And whether We know that human beings, on all living things, once they come to life, they act with energy. But where does this energy come from? And where does it go? You know, you have a cat. The cat is jumping around and meowing and eating and playing and doing whatever. And then the cat dies. And poof, it's just a body. Well, where is that energy that used to be in the cat? Where did it come from? Was it was it somehow preserved in sperm and egg from time immemorial? Well, so if the, when the cat gives birth to kittens, is the cat that gives birth to kittens has it? Is it a repository of energy that it delegates to these kittens and then the kittens live with that energy until then they give in turn? But that doesn't make sense philosophically because that would require any one thing to be a repository of an enormous amount of energy that they can pass on to generations down the line generation after generation after generation, and we know that that, that's not true. So where does the energy come from, and where does it go? So Greek philosophers used to say, energy needs an external provider. The Greeks, you know, whether they called them gods in the plural, or they called them first causes, or whatever they called them, But they basically said that you need something outside the frame of creation to be the giver of energy to everything from a human being who's alive to a star that shoots through the heavens. Because matter in it and of itself doesn't contain that energy. Doesn't in of itself, doesn't it manufacture the energy. The energy seems to come from somewhere, and we don't know from where. That debate, although it, of course, in the modern age, it it developed into you know more scientific-sounding terms, but it's essentially the same debate that goes on, and it's uh, you know the debate between the new atheists and the the creationists, it, it still goes on about the same things. You know, the New Atheists say we don't need to answer the question of where energy comes from. Uh, and, uh, we just need, we need, just need to know that there is no God that is the creator of this energy. Because science will eventually answer the question of where the energy comes from. While the creationists say, well, science hasn't answered that question, and you, your belief that science will eventually answer that question is in itself a form of religious belief, because you're believing in science, like a religion, that you know, science will come through with the truth. Although right now, science doesn't seem to have any indication that it can answer that question, science knows how to exploit energy that exists we can split the atom we can do horrible things with nuclear energy and good things but mostly horrible in my humble view uh but we 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 don't know where that energy the genesis of the energy and where it ultimately goes um, um You know, Einstein tells us that we know that energy cannot be created or destroyed, but anyway. Um, So, traditional, people of traditional tafsir then said that when Allah says for every soul there is a hafiz, it could mean the angels that keep your record, but it could also mean The angel or that, that uh, is the source of energy so that you can fulfill your qadr, so you can fulfill your fate. So, you know, you, whatever fate you have in life, in order to fulfill it, you're going to need a Certain energy that that sort of like you know if you imagine like the fuel that is put into you, and that is the hafiz. Some traditional Mufassirun said no. The hafiz here in alayha is Allah subhanahu wa taala, is Allah Himself. That we don't need the the, the evidence that the reports that tell us about an angel that is a hafiz. There is a a report that, uh, just to make clear, there is a hadith that says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made for every human being, I forgot the number, but in the virtual army of angels that supply the human being with the life force, the energy, what we call the energy, that is needed during their lifetime. Some of the traditionists accepted this hadith, some traditionists didn't accept this hadith. Those who accepted it said the hafiz is the life force, the energy source, and those who didn't accept it said no, the hafiz is Allah Himself, meaning that Allah is telling you in the same way I was able to create the heavens so intricately and with all its complexity and all its richness and all its Apparently, limitless aspects. Um, don't think that any of you escape my guardianship or my observation or my witness or. Okay. So, let man consider. Uh, uh, so let man consider, or let, he, let human beings reflect upon what, what they were created from, or from what they were created. خُلِقَ مِنْ مَاءٍ دَافِقٍ يَخْرُجُ مِنْ بَيْنِ الصُّلْبِ وَالتَّرَائِبِ They were created from gushing fluid. Issuing from sulb and tara'ib. I paused with sulb and tara'ib because this is in traditional tafsirs, this is a long debate. A sulb in old classical Arabic, a sulb are the parts of the backbone the lower parts of the backbone. So your lower backbones, these are the, the sub. And there was a belief, I'm not, you know, um, there was a belief that uh, human beings, that this, the, the lower backbone or the, 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 the lower part of the backbone plays a critical role in the birth of human beings. And a Taraib in, again, in old classical Arabic were the chest area, between the breasts or above the breasts. And there was an old belief that a child it gets certain uh, parts of the child's nature from the 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 backbone of the father and from the chest of the mother. However however a doesn't necessarily mean this it doesn't necessarily mean the old Arabic belief of the bone the, the, the backbone of the father and the chest of the mother because it could simply mean a sulb tarab um yeah uh, the sulb could simply mean the bones and the um, the bones and the fluids of both mother and father. So that's uh, the other possible meaning. The study of Quran says the loins and pelvic arch, and that's a third possible meaning. That the sol- solban, the taraib could simply mean the loins and pelvic arch, and that would be a very reasonable interpretation of the of these words as well. I know, and again, I am not an expert in in this field, so I don't cover it. Um, but I know that I, I, there was a a, a scientist. A convert to Islam, I think a German scientist who wrote an article uh, about he's Surah al-Tariq and he said that studying the words, that this is part of the scientific miracles of the Quran because, and I, I don't remember the article now because it was many, many years ago that I've read it, but that it's something about how the chromosomes and DNA and the, the language uh, lends itself to that. So if you're interested in it, look it up. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm. Um, I don't need the scientific miracles to believe in the Quran. You know, I know it's the truth without the scientific miracles. So I don't pay a lot of attention to it. Um, but I know that you know some people it, it matters a lot to them. Um, so I'm sure you can find it if if you just look up. Scientific miracles of Surah Tariq, you'll probably find it. But Loyans and and uh, uh, the pelvic arc is is very reasonable. But my point is that the traditional tafsir, you if you're reading the direct the direct Arabic, you'll be confused a bit by finding all this material about. Um, whether a child is born from a woman's chest area, whether the the ribs of a woman play a role, all of that is is, is all the, all of that is old. Um, they, they don't necessarily set this narrative because they believe in it, but because they are setting all the different possibilities that words could have, and um, but in terms of understanding what Surah Torah could say, it, it would be very reasonable to say that Sulbah you Tara know, means that it's created from loins and, and the pelvic arc. Again, the point is if a if God can turn this fluid into a living being and what is seemingly coming from nothing to something, then why are you surprised that God can also bring this human being back to life? This is particularly in response to the old Arab belief that once, that even if they believed in God, they did not believe that God was capable of bringing people back to life. so that would be a direct response to this and saying, you know, think of the miracle of life itself and you'll know that resurrection is not a stretch. الصراير, the day when secrets are revealed, there is a Hadith to, uh, attributed to the Prophet the Prophet is asked about what the meaning of Tubla and the Prophet says, Well, there are people that say we've prayed but they we pray but they don't pray. There are people who say we fast but they we don't fast, and people who say that we give zakah but they don't. Um, these people are going to be confronted with their lives in the hereafter. And of course, that becomes central in the traditional tafsir narrative. <coughs> and in that day, human being stands without external support. In other words, they're not going to be able to get away from accountability. And from having to answer their to, uh, their own uh, uh, answer the answer to their lies. Um, another thing about Tubla Srair that I should mention: um, it was in the traditional tafsir and and especially among the early Muslims, it was understood that. This yet again was an emphasis on honesty in dealing. So you have these very interesting reports. Uh, for instance, um, one of the narratives goes that a, a man goes to a sheep herder, a kid, a, a boy who was herding sheep, and he said, you know, give me one of these sheep and and clean, tell your owner that it was lost, and I'll give you half the price and you can pocket that money. And so the, the sheep herder reportedly, the, the boy, young boy, told the man, well, yes, I can fool my owner, but what am I going to tell Allah al sarair, quoting Surah Tariq. And the man was so struck by the response of, the, of that kid, that he swore he, from that day on he swore that he will never lie or cheat, so point is that this was part of an ethic that taught to early Muslims an ethic of honesty in treatment, in dealing uh, in older affairs. Okay. وَالسَّمَاءِ ذَاتِ الْرَجْعَ وَالْأَرْضِ ذَاتِ الْصَدْعَ وَالسَّمَاءِ ذَاتِ الْرَجْعَ The heavens that resurges, the sama that resurges, and the traditional tafsir said, this has to be a reference to rain, and how the, the water evaporates from all over, it forms into clouds, and it, then it falls into rain. وَالْأَرْضِ the raja, The ferrored earth, and then the miracle of the earth receiving this water, and it cracks open so that plants can grow. And that, again, that Allah is saying, you know, reflect. For the earth to retain its water and for there to be a process, an intricate process of evaporation and cloud formation and rainfall and the, the entire dynamic of how seeds break through the earth. Al-Ardu uh, dhat means the, the cracking earth, the earth that cracks in response. Uh, this cannot be coincidence that all of this needs again an intelligent maker behind it. That this is in Naulokul Fosk Wamahua bin that this is a decisive message. Decisive meaning Fosk means separates false from truth. Darkness from light. It is not a message to be taken lightly. It is not something that you can consider as uh, marginal or ancillary. It is what everything is about. And then this most fascinating promise to the Meccans in the tra- from the traditional again perspective كيدا كيدا that they are scheming and plotting meaning that they oppose you Muhammad and are scheming to persecute you, Muslims but know that God has his own plans وَمْهِرُهُمْ رُوَيْدًا Don't worry. It is in Allah's control. You can imagine the response of the Meccans as you would hear, as they would hear, at that time that Surah Toraq was revealed, you know, this man who has a few followers who are mostly persecuted is telling them you are um you are scheming and God is scheming and just wait and see. That must have sounded like completely absurd to them. Absolutely ridiculous. And in fact, we do have reports that when they heard this, they, they mocked it, they they laughed, It said, you're telling us that we and not see? Um, and of course, in hindsight, we know what happens. We know that, you know, after five or six years, that they're going to migrate to Medina, and then they're going to be the Battle of Badr, and they're gonna you know, win that battle, and so on and so forth, but this is still in the future. And, it, now in traditional tafsir tafasir there is the issue of when Allah says they scheme and Allah schemes, is this a promise limited to the Prophet, والسلام, or this is something that can take can be taken. Um as a message to Muslims across the ages. And Ibn Taymiyyah and people like Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Qayyim al and and um, they said, no, it's a message to Muslims across the ages that, but as long as they are real Muslims, um, true to the message. And that Allah is doing what, we hear repeatedly in the Quran, is that if you are with Allah, Allah is with you. And that regardless of what happens short term, you must have absolute confidence that when Allah wills, things will change and change in very dramatic ways. Okay, so that's a traditional approach to Surah Tar. Which is pretty straightforward, I think, and invokes very common themes, um, but important ones nevertheless. Okay, let, let's take a three-minute break, and then we'll start the second approach. Okay, Bismillah rahman ar-Rahim. The Sufi-esque approach is next.
2: Oh. <laughs> I the
0: tradition was kind of fun. Too boring. No,
2: it it's
0: because <laughs> you're used
2: to the incredible. Yeah, no, we're used to <laughs> the new ideas.
3: So, the some of the most. Um, beautiful language in our tradition was generated in commenting on Surah Tariq and because of that I'm going to read some of the, the Arabic and then paraphrase it, but just so the those who do know Arabic would get a sense of um, the inspiration that Surah Tariq had. So we start out with the same with the same foundation that the Prophet counseled strongly to reflect upon Surah Tariq and that you don't uh, just pass um, without reflection. and. From that, the Sufi-esque tafsir, often this is sort of the the point of demarcation, the point of um, where they start, and then they go on from there. And what's fascinating is that they so they then they say, well, what does it mean to reflect upon? the heavens um and some of the, the language here is ulato hum ulato ahanna ahad and ma'na an-nazar ila alam malakut as-sama' bi'an yamtad an-nazar fayara zurqat as-sama' wada' al-kawakib wa suwar al-buruj wa anta ghafilan an nafsik wa an hifdhak wa an so I, I think this is um, I think this is from Jilani or it might be from Shirazi I'm not sure. I, I didn't write down where I copied it from as I said these notes are often very old they go back a while but anyway so that don't it, if you're just staring at the, the sky and you are noticing, um, planets and your stars and, and lights, um, well, that's not the point because you could gaze upon the heavens and see all, all the planetary configurations. But if it doesn't lend, lead into an insight inside the self, then it is pointless. And the part of the language that I uh, that I've read, and they often point to the fact that the the, the frequent problem with human beings is that they imagine too quickly or that they often forget and start imagining that they've been created just so they can eat and drink and copulate uh, just like behem or like animals without reflecting within the self and understanding the purpose of their existence. And the universe within the self. Okay, so وَالسَّمَاءِ وَالطَّارِقُ In Sufi-esque tafsir all Qur'anic references to Samaa are also references to the within. And it comes from that you gaze upwards But you gaze upwards not for uh, its own sake, but you gaze upwards in order to gaze within. And that the more that you gaze upwards and you open yourself to true understanding, uh, you also see what is inside of you. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the heavens and that that comes to it as a tariq, as an event. Not just an event, but as an event that opens up something, that allows something to unfold, and then Asks rhetorically, and what and do you know what the Tariq is? That Allah is alerting us to the importance of the concept of a tariq, not simply to a particular star in the heavens, but to the to the tariq as, as a concept. And a tariq as a concept. Then unfolds into a Najmul Thaqam, the revealing or piercing star. And what is a piercing star? So here's an example of some of the language which I was alluding to. وفي إشارة إلى كوكب اسم الجمال الثاقب الطارق وكوكب اسم الجلال وقال القاشاني أي الروح الإنساني والعقل الذي يظهر في ظلمة النفس وهو النجم الذي يثقب ظلمتها وينفذ فيها ويبصر بنوره ويهتدي به كما قال هذا ilagh this is from um snaid haqi i believe then elsewhere and i think this is from Shirazi. he says wa nazm al-mutaqib ay al al-mudia al والجذوة المشتعله ساقطه من نار العشق والمحبه الإلهية الى النسوت لك بعدما امرك بالانخلاع عن النسوت اني انا ربك فخلان عليك انك بالوادي المقدسي so these two samples and i'm going to read some others what they're saying is so is an event, and what is the event that is inside of you? You will learn from the heavens that Allah can send events of illumination. Well, what is the event inside of you that resembles what you see in the heavens? And the piercing star within There are, within the Sufi-esque tradition, those like Jilani and Kashani and a few others that said that it is the intellect. The intellect is the locus of what allows you to understand enlightenment that within you the human soul is as if is in a state of darkness that resembles the darkness of the heavens. You look up and there's just absolute darkness. But what pierces through this darkness are events aided by the divine. The intellect when it understands its relationship to divinity, illuminates through this darkness and becomes a najm The second perspective, which is very close, except that it said it is not simply the intellect and the illuminations of understanding, but it is the passion of love that is ignited within. Without love, you remain in a state of darkness. And in fact, some went even beyond that and said that. well, of course, they they have these long discussions about false love and real love, but anyway, that if you have, if you don't know true love, if you haven't learned how to love, and they say that even first that you learn how to love, if you love truly a partner or a mother or a father or a child or a parent, but it has to be real love, not love based on self-promotion and self-interest, not, so not an egocentric love, but a giving love, a love like we talked about um, in Surah Maryam, the, the paradigm of, of, of real love. That without that, then light doesn't shine within the darkness, inside the self. And from that love, you grow into divine love. That if you And that is why when the, we have all the traditions that say that if you don't know how to love human beings, then you don't know how to love God. Because it's the same, it's like the training wheels for how to love God. If if your love towards human beings, towards nature, towards creation, is a selfish love, an egocentric love, a destructive love, then you will love God in the same way. And you will turn God into a tool or a weapon to dominate others, or to beat others, or to persecute others, or to torment others. But if you understand what real love is, then when you love God, it doesn't become about persecuting others. It becomes about sharing divinity with others, spreading divinity to others. That you, you, you understand the qualities of divinity, the qualities of God, godliness, and your love, then you become like a medium for the sharing of divine love with others. So you have the the orientation that says God is telling you work on the intellect so that the intellect can understand its relationship to divinity while Close ally to that orientation is yes, but not just that intellects understand its relationship to divinity, but that the the intellect is in harmony with the with the heart, which is the locus, so that you are light will not shine unless you you grow into a state of
2: love
3: okay so innna kullu nafsin lamma hafiz so here then you have a hafiz but what is this hafiz? In the sufi ask orientation, perhaps among, um, I want to share with you, yeah, okay. So it says, this is from Sadr uh, al-Muta'allihin al-Shirazi. Um, Shirazi, of course, is one of the luminaries of Islamic philosophy and Sufism, um, Persian one of extremely one of the most profound intellects probably that humanity has ever known. So so he says well in Nifusil in Saniya Roqib wahid akli you some be Ruha Kuts and the Ari Shar Aklil Fa'al and al Hukameh Wabiriwan Bakh and the Huk and the Hukameh al Pharisee Faim Kail in Hamlet, in it goes into a little bit of a grammar. So, when Mufar never occurred to Mujama Kuliafi, she could all the nefs, the own Jamia Mufusmin and Mufarakot, well, for Lakiyat, or Ansuriat, well, half is a Rokib, Leha, Alawaja, Lumum, or a loss of Hano, or Lakin, what Lakin, the Kuli nefs Rokib Hosmer. I mean, I say, I have a taxum, well, in Mufus, Insania, Rokib, Wahed, Ukly, you send my brokers. Okay. So, then b- what is Saying is that the hafiz, yes, Allah is a hafiz. Yes, there are angels that are keeping track of what you do. But the hafiz that is specifically referenced here is... He says for, for people of Shara, they call it Ruhu or the Holy Ghost. Um, for people of philosophy, they call it Al Aql Al Fa'al, and we'll, I'll talk about that in a second. The active intellect. And he says that in Persian, uh, they call it Ruan Bakhsh. This is classical Persian, obviously. Uh, that so what what is that? And and here where the the Sufi esque approach gets um, a bit intense. So bear with me a little bit. So they argued that. Human intellects, or, sorry, intellects in creation are of four stages. Al-Aql al-Hiulani is basically the intellect that is simply capable of simple perception. Nothing more than simple perception. Al-Aql al-Malaki, or Aql al-Malaka, it's an intellect that is capable of consciousness. So it has a sense of the self. It can perceive the self. Al-Aql al-Fa'li, or Aql fal is the intellect that can understand obligation. They say it's manat al-taklif, meaning it's the, that is what makes human beings obligated. So, most animals never go beyond al-aql hiulani simple perception. They have no sense of the self. Some animals do, like maybe dolphins, I guess, or whales. I I don't know, I'm not sure. But animals don't have al-aql al-fa'al because they they, they don't understand obligation. Then beyond that, al-aql al-mustafad is the intellect beyond understanding obligation. You are actually learn from your empirical experiences. So that's the analytical intellect. And they argued that, well, when Allah says, kullu hafiz, that guardian is how, a, how developed your intellect is and what you invest in that intellect so that it can go from a simple intellect that thinks in terms of my desires and needs to an intellect that can understand its obligations and duties to an intellect that can actually attain wisdom from learned experiences. Now, why is this important? Well, because they argued that most people who believe they love, they love with a very primitive intellect. They love with an intellect of needs and desires. What I want and what I desire. Give me this, don't give me that. This makes me happy, it doesn't make me happy. And so their love towards human beings and their love towards God is skewed. And when Allah says, Inna and, and I, I'm, I'm skipping the grammatical debate over Lemma and Lemma, I, there, there's a debate about whether it's Lemma or Lemma. But we don't need it. Because I, you already have enough, as, as I'm sure as it is. <laughs> Unless you insist on me going through the grammatical debate, then I'll do it. You know, I'm, I'm happy to do it. But the so this is why this is the rub. This is why it's important. Is that it is not just that you are developing your intellect. But it is what type of intellect are you using to construct, to build your understanding of love? So some of you could say, well, I, you know, I keep trying to love Allah. Well, do you love Allah with what intellect? Do you love Allah with the intellect that al-aql al-malaki, the intellect that just understands desires? And impulses, give me, Allah, give me, Allah, you know, please, Allah, give me this, Allah, give me more money, give me this, give me that, give me that. Or do you love in, in, in Allah with an intellect that actually understands the self and so is not anchored in the primitiveness of self-indulgence? Everyone follow me? Okay i'm I'm trying you know I'm like simplifying all these like if if you want a sample for how the 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 philosophical articulation just for the Arabic readers, here's a, a quick sample so just so you know how much i'm I'm, I'm streamlining um, so just so the Arabic readers can get a sense. وهنا وجه آخر هو أن الإنسان لما كان عالما صغيرا فيه جميع ما في العالم فلا يبعد أن يرد بقوله والسماء ذات الراجع الدماغ وما فيه من قوى المدركة والمتصرفة وما يحصل له من الأحوال المذكرة والإلهامات والعلوم الراجعة المتكررة وإنشئ خصصت الرجوع بالقوى المذكرة ويقال لها المسترجعة ومحلها التجويف المؤخر ثم يقول فيكون إشارة إلى المرتبة الأولى للاستعداد وهو العقل الهيولاني الذي هو أول مراتب النفس القابلة للمعاني كلية وبعضها يكون تلوحا إلى ثاني مراتبها المسمى بالعقل بالملكة الحاصل باستعمال الحواس وحصول الأولويات وهو مناط التكليف وبعضها يكون إيماء إلى المرتبة الثالثة ويسمى بالعقل الفعال أو الفاعل عند تخصيل النظريات لها بمعنى أنها ما تشأت والتفتت إليها حصلتها بلا كسب وتعمل وبعضها يكون إشارة المرتبة الرابعة وحصول العلوم الكلية والحقائق العقلية لها مشاهدة ويسمى العقل المستفاد المودي في دار المعاد it it so it gets it you know it it gets pointed that it gets very extensive. Okay. So now but there is another point in the Sufi-esque approach. So remember we, we did the traditional approach, now we're doing the Sufi-esque approach. Um, so all of this was sama' wa at-tariq wa ma ma at-tariq mushtaqid inna kull nafsin lamma lamha aw lamha 'alayha hafiz what is your guardian and uh, the sufias it's either the heart or the mind the heart in the sense of love or the intellect in the sense of enlightenment okay falyanzur al-insan al-insan mimma khuliq falyanzur al-insan mimma so, human beings created from fluid that flows from a or Most Sufi-esque tafsir say a taraib is loins and pelvic cavity like the traditional. Except some Sufis said, that that human beings are created from a mixture of primordial stages of knowledge. And, and I, you know, I'm, if I'm losing some of you, please forgive me, I, you know, I just teach this stuff. I don't okay. Primordial stage, primordial stages of knowledge, and from more temporal and contingent impulses. What does this mean? That you, as a human being, when Allah creates you. Allah inputs in you knowledge of things that are of nature necessarily through. So in other words, your desire for justice, even an animal has a sense of that. So if you have two dogs, you give one dog a treat, the other dog looks at you like, where's my treat? A primordial sense of justice you can't give that dog a treat and me not a treat. For a dog it's its basic sense of the self, for a human being it's more developed than that. So you, a a basic sense of sometimes we need mercy. So, yeah this would be just, so like for instance when you think, you look at your father or punishing your brother or sister and say, oh, this is too much. Okay, yeah, my brother did something wrong, but it wasn't this bad. Primordial knowledge, this deep sense of right and wrong that Allah instills in you, but a mixture also of things that are reactive to contingencies. So, for instance, your sense of modesty, or your understanding of language. What's offensive, what's not offensive? That is not formed by any things that are primordial in you, but by experiences. So you could grow in one culture, and, you know, I'll give you an example that I just read yesterday, again, uh, sort of chuckled out because it reminded me. And in, in some cultures, you see two men walking, you know, arm in arm. Oh, nothing. My When my father came in New York, he, he was like, took my brother's arm and like would want to walk him arm in arm like they do in Egypt. And my brother like said, no, 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 they're gonna think we're gay. <laughs> you know, it, you know, it's, this was back in the 80s. So, you know, and we had just arrived in the United States. So we're learning anyway. Uh, another thing um, I had a visitor from back home back home is no big deal I mean I, I don't want to be t- t- but back home when I mean like in 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 the villages uh, it's no big deal if you spit in the in the in the you know you, you just spit no big deal <laughs> um, it, you know it, in the streets of LA, in, especially in, um, you know, in in the nicer parts of LA, it is a big deal. You can't go around spinning. People look at you. Uh, you know. So that's the point: is that you are created from a mixture of both, and the intellect must understand what is primordial within you, and what is contingent and evolving, and a product of Deontology, if you want the fancy word, that a product of morality that is subject to time and place. Okay, then in ala raji la qadar Okay, so Sufi asked the fsirs, understand this. Okay, that Allah can bring human backs, human beings back, the day when sarair. The, the secrets of the souls are revealed. Everything is revealed, including the, the authenticity or lack of authenticity of, of your approach. Um, okay, so we get, and there's no aid and no helper except in, in, in that day where it gets really interesting for the Sufi-esque tafsirs is because remember in the traditional it's rain and plantation, right? in the Sufi-esque tafsirs they say no. is a reference to, as sama is always a reference to this, the, the self up in the sky and, you know, up above and below, both. What are the that Sada is the self and the heart or the soul. I think uh, the dogs know we're talking about what we're going to talk about. And you're going to, actually, it's going to freak you out that the dogs are howling. Because they say that there are, uh, there are three, um, um, they're really howling. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think they, they probably sense gin. Oh my god. <laughs>
0: Bye. <laughs> no. no the
3: door down, I just can't.
2: <laughs> <keep. laughs> <Okay. laughs> <laughs> you
3: should put a in this room. <laughs> yeah. No, worry right. Um, I'm jumping the window. <laughs> the, the, I, I pulled the, the, the thing because I want to see if I, um, if I should share with you some of the uh, text. Um... No, it's too long. Okay, so, so say that there are what, what Allah is alerting you to is that there are um, there is the jism, the body; there is the nafs, the self, and there is the roh, the spirit. The body is the domain of the dunya and it tends to overwhelm the self and the spirit. And nafs The role of the body ends with death. After death, begins in new stage and that's the stage of al-barzakh and in the stage of al-barzakh the uh, there is no translation for the barzakh other than uh, the in-between the in-between or there's a word um purgatory mm -hmm. limbo Limbo. maybe limbo. limbo So, like, there's a word, uh, no, there's a, there's a word from... Down. Like, anyway. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. I took the in-between from a horror movie. <laughs> what?
0: Someone
3: said, the chat is down. Oh. Liminal? Liminal. Um, liminal? Oh, liminal is good. Oh. I like that. Okay. <laughs> um. In the Barzakh, this is the domain of the nafs, the self. There is in the barzakh the self, but there is no jism, there is no body, and the Ruh is constrained and still submerged. And then the Ruh, its domain is in Al Akhirah, in the hereafter. I'm skipping over the evidence that they cite for this because then we'll, this, this halakha will be extremely long. But so, in on this earth, it's the body that tends to overwhelm the Nefs and the ruh, the the self and the spirit. In the barzakh, after death and before the hereafter, in this in between liminal state, this in between state, there is a continued consciousness, but that consciousness, uh. Is, and I'll explain another thing. In the Barzakh, time passes very differently than Earth. So in the Barzakh, a thousand years is equal, as the Quran says, to one year on Earth. And in the Hebrew, after 50,000 years is equal to one year on Earth. So, or, or the, the vice versa. So, in other words, if you, what, in God's time, the the prophet just died a minute ago. In the hereafter, in the barzakh, the prophet just, you know, died a year ago, because it's a thousand. Two. So, in the state of the barzakh, the self is in a different state of consciousness. And it is aware whether it is in purgatory or in a state of bliss. And then the hereafter is a completely, complete different transformation, and that's the raw. So why do they emphasize this? Because when Allah says, inna ala فَمَا لهم قُوَّةٍ وَلَا ناصر وَالسَّمَاءِ ذَاتِ الرَّجْعِ وَالْأَرْضِ ذَاتِ That the, when Allah says the heavens and, وَالسَّمَاءِ ذَاتِ الرَّجْعِ الله is saying, and the self as it will return. And, وَالْأَرْضِ ذَاتِ and the heart and what it can understand of, what it can understand of the role of the body and the role of the self and the role of the spirit. So, in other words, is your heart going to understand that these three layers and the fact that you are your body is falsely dominant on this earth, but It is only in one stage because in the two other stages, this body is going to be very subservient and play a very subservient role. So what is the challenge? The challenge is that on this earth, you elevate the self and the soul so that the body is no longer as dominant. The more you do that, the easier to transition. Okay. And then, I, I'm, I'm, just. I don't know why. Something is telling me read a quote. Um, okay. So it says, اعلم, uh, اعلم ويعبر عن كل منهما بيوم، فكل يوم من أيام الدنيا مدة دورة الفلك الأعظم، وربما يطلق على زمان دورة القمر بل على زمان دورة الشمس أيضا ومجموعة 7000 ومجموعة 7000 سنة وكل يوم من أيام البرزخ 1000 سنة مما تعدون أو 7000 سنة مما تعدون وكل يوم من أيام آخرة وهي أيام الله يكون 50.000 سنة تعرج الملائيك والروح إليه في يوم كان مقداره 50.000 سنة من سوره المعارج فخلق الله الجسم عن الدنيا والنفس عن البرزة والروح عن الآخرة وجعل الوصاية الحاكمة الناقلة لتنوعات عوالم الإنسان ثلاثة ملك الموت ونفخة الرفزع ون ونفخة فالموت للإجسام والفزع للنفوس والساق للرواح فإذا كان الإنسان في الدار إلى إلى So that's the quote that I just wanted to get on record. It gives an illustration of this type of narrative. Okay. Um So now when Allah says they are they scheme and Allah schemes so give respite to the unbelievers. In the Sufi asked the scheming, the, the scheming that Allah is talking about, is not um, plotting and planning. That they think that they are managing their affairs meaningfully and effectively, but in fact they are oblivious to the roles that the body and the self and the soul play. And that in due time, the body will have no role and it will all be about the self, mere consciousness. And then in due time, it's all going to be about the soul and the body will play an entirely subservient role because it will simply be a witness and the self will be completely obliterated because the ego in the hereafter is obliterated, the consciousness, and it's all going to be about the soul. That that is what Allah says wait for. That's the Sufi school of thought. All of that from Surah Tarq. And I've skipped a lot, believe me. <laughs> Um, okay, so I've told you now my approach, um, which of course was, you know, was a a tradition this which you, you're, you're ashamed to, to even offer anything. but what I call, what, what I'm saying is, is my approach is that I focus on the role that Surah Tariq itself played when it was revealed and how it was understood. And so let, let's go back something that we all agree on this the traditional, the Sufi esque and, and mine that Allah alerts us to look unto the heavens. We know that the heavens is dark unless Allah penetrates the the darkness with light. And that Allah alerts our gaze to the piercing star or the piercing source of enlightenment. And of course, it makes perfect sense that this piercing source of enlightenment is the intellect and the piercing source of light is understanding uh, of love and the the uh, to develop the ability to love but what was the light that the prophet and the companions at the time of the Prophet perceived as coming to them. And especially the light vis a vis what was going on in Mecca at the time. What was that piercing light? And in the years of ye- research, and I've talked about methodology many times, so we don't need to go over it, but the the years of research and prayer on Surah al-Tariq, the age of enlightenment that Muslims were being promised was an age in which the oppression of the exploitative classes of society were going to be challenged, which was the age of the rise of الأرض, the, the oppressed in the land. Many of the converts to Islam at that time understood the Islamic message as a message In in fact, one of the narratives about Surah Tariq is that, and it's a very interesting narrative because it says that Abu Abu Bakr al-Siddiq understands from Surah Tariq that he should go and liberate slaves that were being tortured. Why did he understand from Surah Tariq that he should go and purchase labor and slaves that were being tortured? I think that the enlightenment that they understood as coming was a form of social empowerment against the spoiled elite of Mecca. And that When every time, that, especially in the early Meccan surahs, when Allah refers Muslims to reflect upon the state of nature, Allah is also inviting them to reflect upon the egalitarianism in the mechanics of creation itself. The fact that Allah doesn't send the rain solely for the rich and Allah doesn't allow vegetation to grow solely for the rich. But in fact, that, and even there is a very interesting report um, uh, that I found in Akhbar al-Qudah of, of, of all places, which says, it says that the oppressed on the, in the earth will emerge from the land oppressed from the earth will emerge from the land, that it's, look at the bounties that Allah send, so that society will grumble enough so that the oppressed will emerge from the land. And then when Allah says, yakiduna kayda wa akidu I understand that that if you understand that the purpose of this message is this form of liberation, then Allah is with you. and then the entire meaning of this scheme and Allah's schemes becomes very different. Empowerment will be for the dispossessed. If they if they understand that this battle must be fought with the divine hand in hand, not in lieu of the divine or by or in ignoring the divine. That's why I think Surah Taraq before it became one of the most remarkable things that I found about Surah al-Tariq, Well, we know that well, there, there are many r- r- traditions about when it was recited. So there are traditions that the Prophet would like to, very much like to recite it after Maghrib in in Sunnah prayers. He would recite Surah Tarq and um, and another surah I don't remember. And there was a, a, another uh, report that Maaz in prayer recited in one rak'a surat al-Baqarah and another rak'a surat al nisa Do you know how long that would be? So the Prophet <laughs> <salatu> wasalam, said, sallallahu <laughs> alayhi wa you know this is too much mu'az. Why didn't you just recite surat al surat That's another point. But there is another report that Muslims would before battle of Uhud kept reciting surat al And when I researched this report and I prayed on this report, I couldn't get away from the feeling that the early Muslims understood Surah Tariq as a surah of in, in, in calling upon these Mustadhafi those oppressed in the land to tell them A new age is going to shine if you understand that this is what Allah wants from you, to challenge the corrupt power structures that exist. So now you have it. The traditional approach, the Sufi approach, and my approach, I think all approaches are correct. So whichever you want. There is no bad. Except some will reject my approach, I'm sure, but they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: they're
3: wrong. OK, <laughs> alhamdulillah. OK, bismillah rahman
0: rahim. No, you are. Thank you so much. for These are my favorite ones when you do the three version, when you go through traditional, Sufi-esque, and then yours. It's just, it's like three halakhas in one. It's so awesome. Um, Although I was complaining that the traditional is too boring, so sorry about
3: that. (laughs) 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 Did she stutter? Can't say that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Yeah, just, okay. Sorry. I've heard the traditional ones so often that it's exciting to hear, like, you know, the breadth of knowledge and the different ways that it can go and the extent of imagination. and. Intellect and just you know the tradition, the richness of the you're, tradition that I'm, you normally don't get exposed to. I'm, so it's just very exciting. I'm kidding,
3: people. you're entitled to your opinion. <laughs> you're entitled I don't to your opinion. Okay. Uh, it's okay, don't but, feel bad. Um,
0: but I actually, but if I could just ask for a clarification because a couple of us got a little bit confused when you got into the part about um, like the different um, bodies body self and all of that, like which were the
3: verses that those ones arose from. Um, yeah. Thank you, I Amin. Mean. Um the, this is when the, the the this discussion comes up when um the 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 verses uh Yomatullah ala Raj Allah Rajadrul Yomatullah Sra'i from Alam Quatu or another So these are particularly when we get to um, Um, when the the days of the secrets are revealed or tested, where and then we say the and the resurgent sky and the forumed earth. And so, the, in the Suviesque approach, they say, okay, what, what is going to... It's an elaboration upon what is going to be tested. And when you talk about the resurgent sky, um, they don't see it as rain. But um, um, the, um, the attempts of the soul and the self to, to overcome the limitations of the body on this earth And the furrowed earth or the cracking earth as a reference to the human heart as it is receiving the, as it's supporting or uh, propelling the efforts of the soul and the, the self to get beyond the limitations of the body. And then this is the point where they usually talk about well, you know there there's the the body is what is extinguished and upon death, but the self continues on in the barzakh, and then the self is extinguished in the hereafter, uh, but the soul is what continues on in the hereafter, and then of course God brings back the body and the self in some form, but there are they are they don't play a a dominant role anymore. So the reference to the resurgent heaven is understood in the Sufi esque approach as a God is is swearing by the determined the the determined intellect that wishes to liberate the soul and the self from the limitations of the body and life on this earth. Um, Sorry,
0: <coughs> can, can you um, explain the distinction then between self and spirit or self and soul? Like,
3: self okay. is basically the consciousness and, and the ego. Um, that's the nafs. And the soul... Is is the divine substance. It, it is the 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 life that is directly comes from Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. The the self is in, in its most basic form is consciousness, but in um it quickly descends into a form of ego. And there's actually um, there's part that I um, Maybe, actually, since you've asked, where's, where's my notebook? No, the other one. So there's this sort of, um, especially in the Sufi esthetician, it says, um, it says, I think I wrote it down somewhere. Um, Uh, yeah, so, yeah, I, I didn't write the quote, it's Somebody about the idea. So it's basically that uh, they even say that in the the self um, is not the soul and it's not the body. So the self is, is, is like a, a, a hologramic, in, in the state of Barzakh, it's a hologramic thing. So, some Sufis even argue that the the self in the state of barzakh, uh, it is. If your self image is, if if your self is bad. In the state of barzakh, you are not even necessarily going to be human at all. You might be a demon. Um. um you might be something completely dark and foul-smelling. Um, and if you, if you know enough about the paranormal world, that's actually not far off. Uh, evil people, when their souls are stuck somewhere, they emit a smell that like rotten meat. And um, they appear like dark shadows or demonic figures. Uh, while if your if you're, if self is clean, you're like a luminous substance. So you appear in the barzakh as a luminous substance, if Allah allows you to appear, that is. Uh, you can take human form, but you appear like a holograph. You're not, you're not going to have an actual physical form. The soul is, is something else. The soul is a secret from God, because it's divine. So Allah says, you know, they ask you about the soul. Told them that the soul is a secret from God. Only God knows what is the truth about the soul. But that's basically the idea. Was if you want a I... lot more that you held
0: back from us,
3: that... <laughs> well, what I've held back is um, there. There is a long passage that explains how. Um, um, the, the, the self that, um, that the life you lead on this earth actively constructs the self that is struck in the barzakh. And, um, and then there are some very scary language about what that self could be if you are not, careful. So it's basically in the Barzakh you, the, the, you don't have the divine intervention that allows you to filter the truth of the self through the body. Because when we have our bodies in the Sufi perspective at least you have your body uh, the body filters the truth of the self. But but in the following way, so if the, if the self is very luminous, it will reflect upon the body. People will look at you and they will say, this is a beautiful human being. But if your self is very ugly, the body could actually filter it and conceal the ugliness of the self. Unless you have luminous insight. Mm-hmm. Um, and the body will also conceal the ugliness of the self from you unless you stare very deeply within. Um, But that filter is gone in the Barzakh. And all you have is the truth of the self. And when you confront the truth of the self in the Barzakh, you might be terrified because it might dawn on you, oh my God, I'm heading to hell. Uh, Or you might be very happy and say, you know, my self is 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 very luminous, and that bears that's good news for me in the hereafter. Um, so I skipped this, this because this is a long passage and it's just you know it goes on for pages and pages talking about that.
0: Sorry, and last thing you, you went through a long quote, you said you had to insert it, and then you just read it in Arabic but you didn't translate it into English. Did you just want uh, that to be?
3: Yeah, okay. just just for the Arabic speakers. I didn't want to paraphrase it. It's too hard. Okay, <laughs>
0: that's
3: discrimination. That is yes. It is discrimination, <laughs> but it's are hard. we it's being
0: a... multilingual elitist right now?
3: Shia? <laughs> yes. What does the surah teach elitist. us
0: about elitism?
1: <laughs> yes,
3: but but you know, it's it's elitism that comes from the lack of abilities, not the elitism that comes from uh, being. I think we very... all know you have the ability. <laughs> it, it's just too hard to translate some stuff
0: Okay, so we <laughs> just leave it there for history? Or yeah, <laughs> just leave it for history
2: <laughs> no, he said he wants the ability to translate it
3: it's too hard, it's too hard
2: I vote for you to translate
3: <laughs> it oh my god
2: I'm, I'm <laughs> kidding,
0: I'm
1: kidding
3: us a <laughs> that can be your question the, okay. the, the, it's, the, the, it's been too lazy it's just a lot of hard work
0: Okay, we'll get one of the
3: students to translate um, for us after... You know, people don't know that you're always after me uh, (laughs) to spell out everything. She never lets me get away with anything. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why I hide what I read from you. (laughs) You know, that's why I don't tell you. That's why I don't tell you about the good stuff that I read. Because I know you'll never let me get away with (laughs) it.
0: I have, someone has to stand up for the oppressed who don't mm-hmm. speak Arabic. Yeah, I know. No
3: <laughs> okay. The piercing star.
0: Exactly.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, otherwise you're just discriminating. Only the Arabic speakers will be in heaven. That's not fair? Mm. No, I'm just oh, yes, okay. she's Oh, she's really going up. Okay, I've, I've asked enough questions. Maybe I'll ask you later. Okay, anyone else?
3: God, like someone start? save me from her. <laughs> Can I stay with someone with you guys tonight? We yeah, have an additional kanafa on me. Oh cool. She has kanafa. I'm I'm staying with you. Canepha? Goodbye. Oh my gosh. I have ice cream. <laughs> okay.
0: Questions anybody? Come
2: on. My question is just about the the two passages that you quoted. One was about the four stages of the intellect. And then the one that, the ruh and the Nafs, just the source for those, because I, I think I saw you reading them on the, on the different... Huh?
3: The, um, I, if, the it's four stages of the intellect, that was, a, um, a Shirazi, um, Sadr mm-hmm. al Is
2: that Mullah Sutra? Yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, the, uh, other one was what?
2: The passage that Grace
3: is asking about. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um Juliani
2: Akash I don't
3: know. It's His his Mullah Sadr's tafsir on Surah al tariq is very long. Um, he really takes off on Surah al Um the passage that Grace was asking about that I didn't want to that's too lazy to, to translate, <laughs> is... Mm-hmm.
0: That's
3: Rami volunteering to translate <laughs>
0: Oh, there
3: we go. Rami. Yeah, Rami. So and Rami can translate if you guys want. But hey. you have to bribe him for something, because I don't know why he would do it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, give him one of your books.
3: Not my books. <laughs>
2: but,
3: um. Jilani.
2: That was for verses 11 and 12. Is Sama'i that her rajah on the
3: Okay, hold on. Sadiq
2: Hassan Khan.
3: <coughs> okay, so it's not Zidani? No, Sadiq Hassan Khan.
0: Okay.
3: Does anybody else have a question? Yeah, I do. Okay. I get out. I'll, I'll check my my notes downstairs to make sure, but because I I can't find it, um, I didn't write the source. Yeah, sure. Um,
2: so I, I think it's, this is a two-part question. Because I started to, when you got to your approach to it, because of a lot of the, the, the last few weeks, a lot of the discussion on the YouTube live stream doesn't make its way into here, and we don't get to a lot of their questions. Um, and a lot of the discussion has been centered around people who have been through extreme abuse and trauma in their childhood no. and, and dealing with it once they're once they reach adulthood. So I, I saw I mean you could that same idea of the 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 the, 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 the piercing star is coming and that you're going to challenge the oppressive regime could be applied to someone who's going through severe abuse because you know i, I think that that's a lot of the dynamic as you wonder why how how could something like this happen to me and wondering if there if there's hope especially if you're a child who goes through that for a majority of 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 their childhood and are dealing with the ramifications as an adult and the second question or the second part of it is what would you tell somebody who who after going through i mean i'm talking about severe abuse is struggling with loving god does it, like affirmatively does not love god and is is angry because you know of of what they went through what's the advice that you would give to them
3: sorry <coughs> uh, When we talk about severe abuse, are are, are we talking about including sexual abuse? Yes. Yes. The hardest... The hardest thing to deal with, even harder than physical abuse, is sexual abuse. Um, Because sexual abuse... um, divorces a human being from their body and especially consistent and persistent sexual abuse and um, it makes them um, often um, instead of defiant or was maybe even an, an overreaction of uh, defensiveness towards the world it 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 actually it actually makes them divor- divorced from their own body and they are um, in a state of deep alienation towards their their body and which then becomes an alienation towards the self itself because they they and what at because they're human, they're human. They they're aware of the soul, at some level, but in in the midst of, of the memories, uh, they they're often in a in a um, pained relationship with their physical physiological being, and then. They're not sure what what to make of the self in this um, I'm used to have these having these conversations in uh, in private with people that have gone through this because some of what needs to be said is not, um, but there, 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 there are several things. One, there's always the question that I always get, is this God's will? And is this destined? Um, I think, although modern Muslims have become, for the most part, Qadaris, um, I, I think Qadariya is deeply flawed. What does that mean? Uh, the belief in, in predestination for most affairs. Uh, not only is this not predestined, I don't believe it's the divine will. Um, I think that certain types of evil, like sexual abuse, and uh, is the a, 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 a demonic will. Um, you know, we get into the questions of whether the divine should always intervene to prevent every evil, but then if the divine intervenes to prevent every evil, then the very purpose of existence and the possibility of goodness as in the same way, when you eradicate the possibility of evil, then you also eradicate the possibility of goodness. And there is no way that you can eradicate evil without also eradicating good. Um, because when you flatten the playing field, it's all the same. So, but it is not, and I don't agree with the Ash'ariya that Allah that creates the act, uh, like sexual abuse, and then there is the Qasb of the act either. Um, I simply don't believe that Allah creates the act. and. and if you've heard me answer questions about, um, well, anyway, let, let's leave the issue of knowledge aside because that's separate. So, one, I think is it, it's to know that um, something that is thoroughly ugly, uh, God doesn't create qubh. God doesn't create qubh and i think we need to muslims need to re um, rethink the issue of hassan and qubh, of beauty and ugliness god is beautiful and creates beauty period god doesn't create ugliness and the the only possibility of beauty for a and I believe the only real possibility of healing for a person in this situation is to turn to God for healing. Because what they need to do is to heal towards their own body and heal towards their own self. And that requires um, divorcing oneself from everything that the demonic world holds. Um, All the the manifestations of the demonic Uh, and to to steer away from the type of world that creates something like sexual abuse, uh, to steer as far away as possible. I don't I think that to demand that they love God right away is is ridiculous. I think they need to go through a long process of understanding what happened to them and why they deserve to love themselves first. And before they learn to love themselves, they cannot lo- love God. And the process of of healing enough so you can love yourself and you can forgive yourself by understanding that it is not your fault and you played no role into it, regardless of your role, regardless of whether you are forced to cooperate at certain points or you, I've, in my experience, I've, you know, I've had people say things like, yes, but... But I mean I'm sorry to be so graphic. I I I had someone tell me that she this was a woman who was abused by um and of course he would always try to point to um claim to her that her secretions as a woman prove that she's excited. Um and that memory tormented her, um, tormented her. And she has to understand that secretions or no secretions it doesn't mean that she, that she was to blame or at fault. Um, the betrayal of a father towards a daughter in this situation is so fundamental and basic that there's no distribution of of faults. It's thoroughly one-sided fault. So to learn to forgive and to love herself is the first step. And once we achieve that, we start talking about how you feel about God. But without achieving that, all these shiuch that you go to and tell you, oh, just forget and forgive and love God, that, that's nonsense. That's, they, they don't understand. They don't understand what it means to, to go through that level of agony and that level of pain. Anything
1: else?
3: I'm sorry to get so graphic, but this topic, uh, Muslims um, fudge all too often. And uh, as those of you who already know my approach, anyone that is worth calling themselves a faqih in this day and age, uh, they have to be anchored in the epistemology and the system of knowledge of their age. And these are the issues of our age. And they have to speak the language. And they, 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 you know. Uh, a, a, a false claim of adab is hypocrisy, and hypocrisy is worse than any lack of adab that might there there be. So you know all these people that respond to to me when I say something like this, saying, "Oh, you lack adab." No, I, I I'm. If I lack adab, you're being a hypocrite. When when you don't tell people what they need to hear for some decorative sense of adab. That's hypocrisy.
0: Alhamdulillah. I've seen a lot of these um, comments and posts, too, so thank you for addressing that because I think most people are not comfortable just coming out and being very blunt about it, and it's so valuable, especially for people who are suffering.
3: Um. You don't get, understand that you don't, that something like an abuse of a relative or a trusted person to a person that is supposed to, especially a person that's supposed to be in their care, doesn't occur without the the demonic playing an enormous role. And when I say the demonic, it's not just Satan. And um, as Shirazi explains at length, not in the context of Surah Tariq, but... Anything in the human nafs that is that drifts away from the qualities of divinity becomes demonic. It, it is it is like drifting away from light. You you drift into darkness and a deeper and deeper darkness and um. You know, I, I don't I have seen some very strange things. The um, you know uh, 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 um, a cousin who would pray and 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 committed abuse. Um, I mean, pray or not pray, be you know talking religion or not talking religion or. It, it's all—it's—it's it's demonic. No one with an—it was an ounce of divinity in them would do something like that. It's just as simple and straightforward as that, uh, regardless of what pretense they put on. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Any more
2: questions
0: from here? All right. Um, okay. What degree of freedom should Muslim scholars have interpreting Sufi descriptions of the layers of the human spirit and intellect in light of contemporary developments in psychology and psychoanalysis? Methodologically, should Muslim researchers practice a degree of traditional quote unquote purity? In their interpretive developments by expanding on the Sufi epistemology, or is there room to synthesize it with how modern psychologists and philosophers understand the mind and the soul?
3: No, actually, the the best works at uh, synthesis have been done by um, uh, and I'm, I'm my my Sufi English library is packed still in boxes so i I can't like go and and find book titles but there there are actually some very good publications um uh done by um, professors of psychiatry who are also sufi uh they're they're i mean they're often converts um, which is actually a, a good thing because uh, they they think out of the box, um, but um, one of the most I mean it, it's not a secret that what we often learn from Sufism and we learn from Buddhism um, and Taoism um, is it, it's, is often. Um, very much consistent, especially with Jungian uh, psychology, uh, not, so much, uh, not Freudian psychology, but I, I used to be, I used to read a lot of Jung and the thing that would strike me a lot about uh, Jung and his understanding of, of human psychology is how so much of it was consistent with the Sufi tradition and um, what I learned from the Islamic tradition decades earlier. So no, there is a lot of work to be done in that. I mean, it, if Muslims weren't, I mean, Muslims first went, were so busy eradicating their entire Sufi tradition. Uh, by all being Wahhabi slash Salafi, and then when they got over or started getting over their Wahhabi Salafi phase, they had dispersed the Islamic tradition altogether, and you know swung the pendulum towards the West, and um, it, with and left an extremely rich tradition that is. That that could have been co-opted in our modern modern discourses, and some converts are 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 doing that, and that's why if I you find these publications mostly in the West, uh, but if you know w- um, w- when I have my my um, library, or you know inshallah, one of these days. Uh, You know, I I, I might be able to give you some titles and be useful.
0: Okay. All right. Um, Thank you and God bless you, Professor. Absolutely beautiful. My question concerns the relationship between consciousness and the soul. I'm trying to sort this out. Is there a hierarchy of power between consciousness and the soul? Both have dominion over the body. Is that power equal? Since the soul lasts beyond consciousness... And the body, it would seem, that power is the strongest of the three. But because it is directly tied to our primordial truth, it is the weakest and the least exercised.
3: Well, um, Who asked this question? Rufiya. Of course. Brilliant. That's a very smart question. (laughs) Um, And I wish there was a short way that I could answer this question. Um... Yeah. Okay. Um, The, the soul, of course we, other than we know that the soul is divine. It is the embodiment of all the latent energy. Of goodness, that um, and inspirations and flashes of enlightenment that the human being is capable of. Um, now, the self is often the is a repository of. Not just consciousness, but the ego. And the more that the ego is dominant, the more that the ego is incapable of tapping into divinity. And that is why so much of the emphasis in the Islamic tradition is on disciplining the ego. Because the more that you discipline the ego the the more that the, that the enlightenments the illuminations of the soul can flow unhampered um, so uh, we are born with uh, with comp- comp- completely immersed in the self, with the soul um, sort of there, but the intellect slowly starts learning about the soul and tapping into the soul. But as we grow up, um, we often, the intellect, uh, the the self attracts the intellect more and more to its side, uh, and if we're not careful, uh, the the soul is becomes ignored, atrophies, if you will. Not quite, but just not its powers are not exercised. the The more we learn. To discipline the ego, the more we unleash the enlight, the illuminations of the soul. Um, that's the short answer, but they, they, that's a very, very incomplete and inadequate answer because this deserves a, a full lecture, full talk. Um, but it's, it's a very good question.
0: Okay, any more questions? I think on that note, it's a good place to stop. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for this incredible session. Thank you, everyone, for being with us. Um, And, inshallah, we look forward to seeing you on Saturday. Inshallah. Have a great week.